Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. This is the fifth and final part of the series on doubt. I had forgotten all about it but then stumbled upon it hiding under a rock in the back garden. I hope you find something of value in it. Comments welcome at imperfectbuddha.com. Now, though this is part five, you can listen to it even if you haven't listened to the previous ones. Each piece is connected, but somehow I think they can stand alone and they may still be of use to you. Anyway, here's your text. Doubt Part 5. From Taming the Mind to Invoking Doubt. So in many ways we are playing a game similar to Peter Schlotterdijk, or Old Pete, as I like to call him. We are attempting to explore practice from a fresh perspective and claiming practice more broadly as a part of our very rich, very wide human culture. Buddhist practices and notions thus become explicitly a subset of human culture and our task is to return them to the wider sphere of meaning so we may orientate ourselves more effectively. Thus we begin again with practices that resonate with familiar forms but those same forms become far freer and agile because of their home is not located solely inside Buddhism, but within the wealth of human culture within which Buddhism itself is situated. We can see Buddhism as a sort of cultural sphere located within a wider sphere of religion and spiritual practice, which is located in yet another wider sphere of human transformation, desire, hope and fear. It overlaps with philosophy and its many spheres, and psychology and its plethora of stories and methods, and certain sciences with increasing or decreasing resonance and critique. Seeing this way is not about trying to get the best Buddhism possible, or secularizing Buddhism so it might be free of its cultural weight. It is really a movement towards placing Buddhism, its history and its present, within a context that is far larger and richer. Buddhism is not deprived of its parts, there is no dissection or plastic surgery. To use a concept so common in Buddhist discourse, Buddhism is seen more clearly for what it is, and so it remains integral. It continues to exist as a realm within which you can deep dive, yet hopefully do so more consciously of the wider worlds, and that is plural, in which it is located, and has been since its inception. A Buddhist practitioner could make a gesture towards this observation thus. Breathing in, I expand my imaginative framing of Buddhism out beyond its borders into the world where it must brave the winds of critique and engage forms of knowledge that may be alien. Breathing out, I return Buddhism into the human hands that crafted its thoughts and forms of practice and find meaning in their creator's struggles. This way of relating to Buddhism is both a practice and an intellectual discipline that cuts grooves in pathways of inquiry. 
With time, we can gaze into all human cultural creations that have clear traditions and histories in the same light. And gazing for long enough, we might begin to appreciate the complexities, beauty, and struggle of our fellow humans across disciplines. This might even be an inevitable outcome from ceasing to hold to the principle of sufficiency as a viable possibility in any field of knowledge. See more on non-Buddhism if you want to know what that means. The concept of spheres is also helpful for appreciating the idea of interdependency. Interbeing and interrelationship without folding the many things into an indistinguishable mush. A mush that will inevitably be arranged within one's own narrow, limited perception and conceptual resources. Spheres can be seen and experienced as both containers and as porous forms, and as forever mutating, slowly or quickly, depending on the historic moment and interacting spheres. They have a certain integrity, yet expand and contract, receive and give, influence and are influenced, not unlike the human body. In a globalised world of human cultures, this movement and exchange is tangibly faster today and more noticeable, and the porosity is more pronounced. This condition is part and parcel of our own human condition in the 21st century. Retreat from it is thus a poor choice for the savvy practitioner. Better to immerse yourself in many spheres and embrace the current moment as a condition in which you already exist. Once this recognition is owned as a personal memory, immersion within forms becomes the acknowledged landscape within which any given personal practice takes place. We are, in a sense, creating an imaginary landscape within which we respond to the spheres that we are located in, come up against, and to which our imagination and actions travel. Viewing Buddhism within this way does not imply that Buddhist traditions be downplayed or demoted either, but simply that they be placed within a wider family of human practice. This is not perennialism either. There is no flattening of all things into any kind of unifying total vision. Spheres are merely spaces of human practice, vision and culture. Or a clearing, as Schlotterdijk might say. To journey into more of them is to expand our awareness of and experience with the richness of human culture and struggle that our species has and is engaging in. Ceasing to order them hierarchically in any kind of absolute leads to the democratization of thought that Laruel speaks of. Democratization does not make all parties equal in what they do. It merely allows them to participate in the game of politics because they exist. Seeing the forms and traditions of Buddhism like this sets aside discourse rooted in hierarchy, but it is not anti-hierarchical necessarily. Rather, both are the products of humans attempting to make sense of the world and are sites of meaning-making and practices. To meditate. When we talk of meditation, we are often talking or thinking of an abstract. We may also be operating within a therapeutic or self-management sphere within the larger sphere of a given form of Buddhism, which itself is within the larger sphere of contemplative practice traditions. And, of course, religions. So when a person says they are meditating, it may be useful to ask what is it they are actually doing and what their idea of practice is pointing to. Further, what are they actually doing with their body, attention, breath, posture and all the extras that surround the practice? 
In truth, the materials of meditation and practices are the materials of us, obvious but easily forgotten. Even the word meditation may be to pronounce too much. We are breathing, perceiving, feeling, relating creatures. Practice starts and ends with these fundamental facets of being, and to return what is actually taking place to these fundamentals can help loosen up the tendency to isolate the idea of practice from the wider world and to make practitioners into special folks operating outside of the wider world. To point this out may seem excessive to some, but the obvious is so often hidden from our gaze that it's worth risking a word or two more on it. Inviting your practice into spheres which offer alternative takes on a tradition's interpretation of the basic materials of being can be enlightening to say the least, and disrupt many of the problems that emerge from being absorbed into one sphere's narrative about the world, the practitioner and the role of practice. A core idea associated with meditation is that our thinking is a problem. Discursive thought becomes an obstacle to insight or the experience of something along the lines of pure awareness. One problem that dogs so much of the world we inhabit today circles around the enduring notion of absolutes. We have pure consciousness, fully awakened mind, universal compassion and so on. Or no such thing is ever, ever possible. Ideals that may be sweet to aim for or intellectually satisfying but in practice often end up confusing practitioners and lead to unrealistic expectations or cynicism towards practices that have great potential to lead to meaningful transformation. It might be better to simplify and cultivate a less demanding expectation of meditation, not eliminate goals but redimension them. There are umpteen potential goals of any single meditation practice, and a given teacher or tradition may have authority over what is most likely unexpected. It is inevitable that we complex creatures often fail to live up to such expectations or end up in terrain quite different from that laid out, especially in a globalised world where traditional practices are usually operating in different contexts, having been uprooted and displaced from traditions. If we accept a simple distinction here to address the issue of discursive thought, we can carry on without getting bogged down any further. We can all likely agree that a major feature of consciousness for us humans is a discursive component. We tend to experience an ongoing dialogue inside our heads. For many, if not most, it is more or less incessant, unless disrupted by action or strong emotions. It is often most apparent as a running narration of events, concentrating on what we are doing, engaging in action that demands all of our attention, or strongly absorbing experiences of pleasure or pain, tend to silence this running dialogue without any particular meditative or contemplative practice being carried out. Meditation as a category of practice, a pretty big sphere itself, is often harnessed as an intentional means of addressing the compulsive and habitual nature of discursive thinking and the emotional habits that tend to go along with it. Minus the absolutes to to suggest that we can disrupt the impulsive-compulsive character of discursive thought and that there may be immense benefit in doing so seems pretty uncontroversial. Although I am retreading what should be familiar ground to many of you, clarification is necessary, so we all avoid slipping into lazy categories of agreement or disagreement. This is also part of the process of returning to fundamentals. As a general principle, if we can extend the amount of space between stretches of absorbing compulsive internal dialogue, ease off the running commentary, relax knee-jerk associations with points of reference all too familiar, then we can allow a kind of space to emerge, or a gap and then increase between stretches 
of discursive thought, that space or gap. For convenience sake, we can refer to this as the discovery cultivation of spacious awareness, which is preferably embodied and environmentally situated. A great variety of meditation techniques have this as their outcome, and there are clearly depths to it, or degrees of competence, which for some come easy while others struggle. Thought is not lost or rejected, but calmed or relaxed out of for short periods of time, which can extend out. From this, with practice, you can develop the capacity to relax out of discursive thought at will, or engage with thought quite differently, typically in a contemplative or creative manner. This embodied awareness and relationship with thought is thus a qualitative shift in how we relate to the content of our mind, rather than a pursuit of some kind of transcendent escape from thinking. Invocation and the dialogical approach explored below are far more effective when following this initial step of taming discursive thought. For those who would benefit from a practice structure for going further with this, the following steps might be worth using. This process constitutes a pretty reliable approach that most folks can get started with. Many more instructions could follow, refinements given, tweaks made, context given, doubts discussed, challenges met. If you have meditated long term without doing any of this, you might want to seek out someone to give you a hand with adjustments, challenge and so on. If you are new to meditation or have only dabbled in mindfulness, you might want to stick with what works and perhaps use this as a short-term experimental addition to what you are currently doing. If any of you want a non-traditional approach to taking any of this on and what follows further, feel free to get in touch with me through my coaching link above or through imperfectbuddha.com coaching. I know, I just advertise, but why not? But I'll tell you what, if you want to go anywhere with this stuff, at some point you will need a hand. Initial Procedure for Taming Discursive Thought Here are 10 steps you can follow. It will probably be easier for you to go and have a look at them at the imperfectbuddha.com site, Doubt Part 5. Scroll down and it's all there. But here they are anyway, and I'll read them slowly with a short gap in between. 1. Sit comfortably in an upright posture. Rest your palms on your thighs. 2. Look straight ahead and connect to your surroundings. Then relax. 3. Keep your eyes opened or closed as you prefer. 4. Breathe in for a count of 4 using a steady rhythm. 5. Hold for a count of 4. 6. Exhale for a count of 4 and relax your body further as you do so. 7. Hold just for a moment, then breathe back in for four one more time. 8. Keep going for a while like this. 1 minute, 2 minutes, 5 minutes, 10 minutes or more if it helps. 9. Stay connected to your body throughout. Include the space you are in if it's relatively easy for you to do so. And make sure not to force your breathing. It should be calm, steady, and relatively relaxed. 10. Think of the whole exercise as rooted in the following. Connection, relaxation, and aligning attention with the count. Invocation practice. 
Next step. Intention plus questioning. The procedure above, or the preceded this, creates a reset for you to engage with this step, which starts by using questions to engage with doubt. This is a form of dialogical practice not dissimilar to what you might experience in a counselling or coaching session or from a decent Dharma teacher. It is useful to shift between maintaining dialogue as an avenue of exploration and experiencing as fully as possible the feelings associated with doubt that come up for you. Different questions may invoke feelings or flavours or thoughts related to doubt, or images or sounds, or nothing at all. The meditative component is really all about allowing things to emerge without forcing anything. Some will find the whole process intuitive and easy to navigate. Others may need a helping hand. Questioning comes best after achieving a certain degree of spacious awareness and grounding in your physical body and situating yourself more fully in the physical context you are located in, as suggested in the previous practice. You are allowing for the opportunity to be surprised by the answers that might come. Intention setting gives direction to your actions and is established through your own formulation of a given theme, in this case doubt. The following is a fairly decent all-purpose one to get started with. Try using it before you meditate or engage in this dialogical process. I will work with doubt during this session. May I see clearly, feel clearly and know the experience of doubt? That word can be followed with the following phrase as a disruption to my, you would fill in the blank of what follows. The questions may help you make sense of what this is pointing to. The next step simply involves you introducing a question to the spacious awareness developed with a preparatory meditation practice of the sort outlined previously. It may be that you realise in doing so that you need to continue with the previous technique for a little bit longer. Here are a few question options for exploring doubt. If they don't work for you, you can make your own. Here are the questions. What knowledge do I hold on to too tightly too often? What ideas maintain the experience idea of me as fill in the blank? What intellectual position do I cling to that I identify with perhaps a little too much? What lies on the other side of my overconfidence in belief X? What will happen if I suspend a good amount of what I am so certain about for a while? How do I react to being wrong? What purpose does this reaction serve? How is my identity maintained by living within the role of the person who knows in situation X, relationship Y or role Z? What might happen if I were to give up that role even for a short while? To what degree could I free up my attachment to idea X and be more creative in my relationship with it as a result? These are the questions. Questions and answers are best experienced rather than grasped abstractly if they are to have the possibility of bringing about some small form of insight, transformation or breakthrough. It's a cliché for some, but the simple formula of mind plus body plus heart is pretty good. If a question and its answer can resonate across and between these three fields, it will usually have a greater impact and be more meaningful. 
If this is hovering too close to the words of a guru and it bothers you, just think of music, which has its greatest power when it possesses all of you. Mind, body, heart. The problem with remaining only at the level of the intellect or of thought is that so often our feelings acts is that so often our feelings act as gatekeepers for what we will be honest about. Some will find all this a little tawdry, but without the context of the individual, what is presented here is necessarily general. These are starts, not journeys or endings, and we need each other eventually if we are to progress through our murky innards. Then it's on to this, the second option. Invocation through feeling. Using dialogue or a good question is a decent avenue to head down when working with doubt or any other practice item. It resonates with the Socratic tradition and modern counselling too. It is part and parcel of the pedagogic endeavour. For some though, it is better to start off within that odd world of human subjectivity known as feelings and emotions. The world many of us are caught up in and spend much of our life trying to grapple with, manage and understand. For those aware of the enamoured way with which many spiritual folks use feeling as the great door of truth, I am not proposing emotions and feelings as magical gateways to the true you, or as the recovery of your authentic self, which apparent society and capitalism fucked up. Rather, emotion and feeling are really a kind of language and therefore are fundamentally a form of communication. Emotions and feeling can entrap us, or liberate, maintain a subjective norm or seduce us into patterns of dysfunctional behaviour. Seeing both as dialogue renders this approach similar to the path of questions above. The simple idea taken from Buddhism is that there are practice doors that may open more easily for some rather than others. Your practice may be better served through language, invocation, intention, feeling states or something else. At some point they can all make friends, but that's usually something you have to work at for quite a bit. Here's an idea for how to work from feeling. Repeat the procedure for taming discoursive thought above, or previously. Reconnect a feeling in the body and the physical context you are situated in, and then follow the procedures. You can go for number one, or skip to number two. Number one. Bring up a memory of a time in which you had significant experience of doubt, Reconnect to the memory through invoking the experience and the associated feeling. 2. Locate a familiar feeling of doubt in your body. Feelings tend to have tangible locations. Decide if it is a feeling you can work with, or if it is too much, leave it. Breathe into the feeling so that it expands and gets to the point where it feels uncomfortable. Sit in the discomfort for a while, longer than you might normally. Intensify the experience by using your imagination and breath to expand it or root it more fully in your body. 3. Add in the following question or something similar that speaks to you. What does avoiding this feeling keep me from? 4. You can take two directions following the previous step. Sit with the feeling further or shift that is triggered by the question or reflect on what comes up for you, and even consider a move into dialoguing with it. 5. If you wish to turn this into a process of dialogue, you can use the questions from the previous section to go further. 6. If things get too much, just stop. You can write everything down that's in you, 
on paper as a sort of clearing out. If you then need help, reach out to someone able to help you. In most cases, a bit of stretching and exercise will do the trick. Final note. For many, the real value of all this comes from sitting inside feelings that we avoid or control or overmanage. In doing so, we destabilise the habitual experience of the feeling, thinking, self. This then has reverberations in other arenas or areas of our subjectivity that will then affect how we relate to the world. All practices find their meaning and value within the individual or group relationship to them, not in value and meaning assigned by some authority. Meaning emerges through your relationship with a given practice, or it doesn't, in which case you will hopefully move on to something more appropriate and not give up and carry on behaving as you normally do. For some, this might be thinking with humility, which will be the last post in this series. A final reminder, get in touch if you need help with any of this. ImperfectBuddha.com Coaching This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools, well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts, and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. 
I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.